Hello, and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It is the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. So I thank you for joining us on this journey through 2 Corinthians as we look at Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth and all the, the ins and outs that have been dealt with there. As we get to the 13th chapter, we're going to see some uh, reminders from Paul, reminders of who we are in Christ, reminders of how we're called to behave and what we're called to do. So I look forward to you joining me as we examine this passage of Scripture. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we turn to you today, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to your Spirit, that you would open our minds to your Word, that we would hear your voice and be challenged by it, that we would be called to greater obedience to you. And Father, that you would encourage us in this life. As we live in our weakness, Father, help us to be strong through your Spirit. Help us to face every challenge, every trial in your strength and in faith in you, that we may persevere, that our faith might be mature as we seek to glorify and follow you. Lord, speak to us through your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we pick up with the beginning of chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians, we find ourselves in this continuing discussion that Paul is having. There's been these accusations against him that he's not a real apostle, that these, quote, super apostles that have come in that, that claim that Paul's not legitimate and they're so great because they've done all this and, and said all these things. Paul is in a position where it almost seems like he has to justify himself as an apostle. And throughout chapter 12, we or yeah, chapter 12, we saw him pick apart those arguments using their own standard for why they consider themselves important. But then also emphasizing what he broached in the 11th chapter with this idea of being made strong or God being shown strong in Paul's weakness. And he keeps bringing them back around to that. Now we see that unfold a little bit further in chapter 13. It starts this way. This is the third time I'm coming to visit you. And the scriptures say the facts of every case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now that's a reference back to, to Deuteronomy, where in the Mosaic law it establishes that if you're going to bring someone to trial, that there have to be two or three witnesses. And you may say, well, why is he talking about establishing a testimony and, and all of this? Well, when he's saying, I'm coming the third time, he's referring to the times he has had to come before and this one as being times he has had to hold them to account. He has brought, if you will, brought charge against them at this point. And that each of those previous visits stand as a witness against them. And you'll remember back in 12, he finishes out with kind of a, a list of things that he's afraid he's going to find that they will be, if you will, charged with in the eyes of God. 
that finding quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly behavior. Uh, he's saying, you know, and that they won't be humble and that that's going to grieve him. But when he comes, that's from chapter 12. But then when he comes back, as he mentions in 13, that third time, if he finds it again, then those times are all going to stand as witnesses against those crimes against God that have just been listed, if that makes sense to you. That's where he's going with that. In verse 2, he says, I have already warned those who have been sinning when I was there on my second visit. Now I again warn them and all others, just as I did before, that next time I will not spare them. I will give you all the proof you want that Christ speaks through me. Christ is not weak when he deals with you. He is powerful among you. Although he was crucified in weakness, he now lives by the power of God. We too are weak, just as Christ was. But when we deal with you, we will be alive with him and will have God's power. So there, in just the first four verses, he's laying out some charges against them. He's warning that those past behaviors that were um, noted at previous visits and that he's charging them with now are things that they're going to be charged with and there will be witnesses to. And then he says, hey, he's going back to this charge that he's not a real apostle. And he's saying, look, I've, I've been justified, you know. I have, you want proof? I'll give you proof that Christ speaks through me. Here it is. Let's look at the life of Christ. In weakness, he died on the cross. In strength, it was in his strength. He now lives by the power of God. He says, you want evidence of my authority, my power as an apostle? Here it is. He says, we, Paul and the ones with him, we too are weak just like Christ was. But when we deal with you, we will be alive with him and we'll have God's power. So he's saying, you may see me as weak now, but understand the time is coming when he comes to visit again, when it's not going to be in weakness, it's going to be in power. In essence, he's telling them, straighten up, because time's up. I'm coming. And when I do, I'm going to deal with this. So that's kind of the challenge just in the first few verses that Paul lays before them and the warning he gives them. Now, picking up in verse five, he says, examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you and that among you there actually is more accurately translated as in you. That would be Christ's spirit in you type of a thing. So that Jesus is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. As you test yourselves, I hope you will recognize that we have not failed the test of apostolic authority. So there again, he's not only comparing his role as an apostle towards the church at Corinth as Christ's role as savior towards humanity, in his weakness, he was crucified, but then he comes in God's strength through the resurrection. Paul saying, I came in weakness, but I'm coming back in strength, in God's strength. He's saying, look, this is the test applied to me 
and on this standard I pass it, now it's time to judge yourselves. Not as being apostles, but judge your own faith. Is it genuine or is it counterfeit? And it's pretty stern words he gives them. You know, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, then you have failed the test. That's the test. Do you have Christ in your life? Not do you talk about Jesus. Not do you go to church services where you learn about Jesus and you read scripture about Jesus. Do you have Jesus in your life? Those that know me know that there's a phrase I use. And it's it's not intended to be judgmental. It's intended to call each of us to sober self-judgment. If you claim to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, then it has to have changed your life. Let me point that out again. If you claim you have had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, that is, as your Lord and Savior, then it has to have changed your life. If you are who you were before your encounter with Christ, before coming to know him as Savior and Lord, if nothing has changed, then I question, and I urge you to question, has anything really changed? And if it hasn't, you've got business to take care of with the Savior. Don't waste time playing church. Don't waste time going through all the motions. I have known people over the years that have a tremendous relationship with the church, a tremendous relationship with bodies of believers coming together and ministering. But even though they have a wonderful relationship with the church, at the end of the day, they don't really have a relationship with the Savior of the church, with the thing that unites us together as the church, and that is, or I should say, with the one who unites us together as the church, and that is Jesus Christ and his Spirit dwelling in us. And Paul's challenging them, do some heart examination. Now, he's not blasting them going, you're saved, you're not saved, you're not saved, you might be, we'll see later, you're saved. We don't have that privilege God doesn't give us that um, ability to judge whether a person is saved. That's his business. But he does tell us that there are some tests of faith and that we need to be using them on ourselves. Am I truly placing my faith in Christ or something else? Am I doing a list of things I think are the right things because I think that's what a saved person looks like, sounds like, and does. But I don't have the relationship with Christ to back it up. I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me. And I'm confident in my faith in Christ, in his redeeming work in my life. Do I still have rough edges? Absolutely. Do I still have sin in my life that I have to confess to him? 
and I have to seek to submit myself in obedience to him on? Absolutely. Because I am still being sanctified. I have yet to enter his presence in glory. But he has declared me righteous. He has justified me through the sacrifice of Christ. And I, I will live for him. I can answer that for myself. No one can answer that for you, except you. So, let me give you the encouragement that Paul gives in verse 5. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Now in verse 7, Paul says, We pray to God that you will not do what is wrong by refusing our correction. I hope we won't need to demonstrate our authority when we arrive. Do the right thing before we come, even if that makes it look like we have failed to demonstrate our authority. So in 7, he's saying, look, it is more important that you do the right thing, that you turn back to Christ, that you examine your hearts and get them right, that you leave behind these sins that it seems that you were latched onto, that you reject these false teachers. It is far more important that you do those things. Why? Because it will build them up. As a church, as believers, it will build them up. He said, that's far more important than us showing up and showing our apostolic authority over you. It's not about us being able to show our authority. He would much rather not have to show his authority to be able to just show up and fellowship with them. But he's warning them, if if you don't straighten it out before I get there, I will have to deal with it. So it gives them that opportunity and that reminder, hey, it's not about us. You know, we don't care if it looks like we failed to demonstrate our authority. That's never the point. The point is your relationship with Christ. Verse 8, for we cannot oppose the truth, but must always stand for the truth. We are glad to seem weak if it helps show that you are actually strong. We pray that you have become mature. Now, that term mature there in verse 9, that's an interesting term. It's used several places in Scripture. We see that same word used in in Mark and 1 Thessalonians and Hebrew and 1 Peter. Uh, We see it used um, in verse 11 here, where he uses the phrase again and says to grow mature. But the interesting thing about that become mature or to grow mature used here and the way it's translated is that Greek word actually carries the idea of repairing or of completion or restoration. In fact, in Mark, it trans- Mark 1.19, it translates as repair. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, it translates as fill. In Hebrews 13.21, equip. In 1 Peter 5, restore. So to become mature isn't just grow up. That word carries with it this bulk of meaning. Yes, it means to grow up, but uh, to mature, to age, to become wiser. It also means to become more complete, to become whole, to become restored, to become filled, to become repaired. 
Sounds a whole lot like what God does in our lives, doesn't it? Fixing what we had that was broken. Making something complete out of it. Making something beautiful out of it. So I, I find nine to be a beautiful verse. We are glad to seem weak if it helps show that you are actually strong. We pray that you will become mature. I'm writing to you, or I'm writing this to you before I come, hoping that I won't need to deal severely with you when I do come. Now he's referring to this whole letter of 2 Corinthians, and he's he's hit him pretty hard in there. He's saying, look, I'm hoping by sending this letter that when I get there, I'm not going to have to do these things, that you will respond to this letter. He goes on, for I want to use the authority the Lord has given me to strengthen you, not to tear you down. You may say, well, God never calls us to tear down. Yes, he does. If their allegiance is to these false apostles that build themselves as super apostles, these false teachers, if their allegiance is to their sin, to their quarreling and to their, their greed, their arrogance, their all those things he lists, if that's where their allegiance is, is that, if that is what they are building their community of faith upon, then it will not stand. And it's Paul's job for their benefit to tear it down so that they can build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the job calls Paul to build up. Sometimes there's stuff in the way that's got to be torn down before he can build them up. But it is all intended for their benefit. It is all from the heart of a man who has a sense of calling from God, who has been placed in a position to not only proclaim the gospel, but to establish these churches and help these new believers grow in their faith, grow to maturity, grow to completeness, grow to being equipped, grow to being fully restored, filled, repaired. Sometimes it involves tearing down. Paul's hoping it won't this time. That's his hope he's expressing in verse 10. Now we've made it to Paul's closing remarks. Now, this is verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, or depending on your English translation, it might be 11, 12, and 13. Some translations take 13, make it part of 12, and make 14, 13. Does that really matter? No, it doesn't. Because the number breakdowns, frankly, for the chapters or verses, aren't the divinely inspired part of Scripture. They're the practical part of Scripture that in the Middle Ages they figured out it was a whole lot easier to find stuff you were looking for in the Bible if you could refer to chapter and verse. Can you imagine if all we had was verse after verse with no breaks, no no chapter markings, no... I mean, you had the entire book of 2 Corinthians. It'd be, okay, turn to, oh, I don't know, it's about two-thirds of the way through. Paul's talking about... Yeah, it'd be hard to find things. 
chapter and verse makes it a lot easier. It's just a referencing system, but it's not entirely a uniform referencing system. So you get little discrepancies like this in the numbering, but that's okay. It's still God's word. It still speaks his truth. So let's look at these last few verses, Paul's conclusion to the church at Corinth. He says, dear brothers and sisters. Now this is format of this is normal closing for a letter in the first century world Rome, Greco-Roman world. So there's nothing unusual to its structure, but here what he says, dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. And he gives them a list of things that he's encouraging them to do or to be number one. Well, my number one, he doesn't list his number one. It's just first in the listing. Be joyful. What does it mean to be joyful? Be one of those goofy, happy people that laughs at everything? No, those people are annoying. I'm kidding. Well, they can be annoying, but no, this isn't laugh at inappropriate times and everything. This is about having that abiding joy that you may not always be walking around with a goofy smile on your face, but you have that, that positive outlook, that joy that is grounded in Christ that you know no matter what happens, where it happens, or when it happens, he's got you. And you're in him. Be joyful. Here it is again. Grow to maturity. We've already unpacked maturity there. So let me just refer you back to earlier discussion. Uh, grow to maturity. So what does he want from them? close my letter with these last words. Be joyful, grow to maturity, encourage each other. Boy, that can be a tough one sometimes. It is in our nature to pick at each other. Uh, right now, as I record this, we are six, almost seven weeks into social isolation and stay at home uh, with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. It gets hard to be encouraging as a family when you're together a whole lot. But yet we still love each other and we still seek the benefit of the other. We still seek to exercise generosity of spirit. And so we try to encourage each other not focus on the stuff that irritates you because there's always plenty of that. Focus on those areas you can encourage one another. So again, be joyful, grow in maturity, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace. Yeah. If I have the spirit of Christ dwelling in me and I'm seeking to follow him, if you have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you and you seek to follow Him and listen to His voice, don't you think we should be able to get along? Don't you think we should be able to live in harmony and in peace with one another? Now, He may be calling us to different aspects of the body. We may be gifted to serve as different parts of the body of Christ, but if we are made one body by his redeeming work and by the indwelling presence of his spirit, then harmony and peace should not be something beyond our grasp. They should be where we strive to live. Going on, he says, then, it's a conditional statement, 
be joyful, grow in maturity, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace, then the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, is God with you all the time? Yes. Do you acknowledge him with you all the time? I dare say probably not. Why? Because your heart isn't attuned to him. Because you're not paying attention to him. Paul's giving us a little secret here. Do these things. You'll be in tune with him. You will be able to recognize the presence of God with you. Going on to verse 12. Greet each other with Christian love. I know some of your translations read with a holy kiss. Well, we're not first century Middle Eastern world. Uh, it was common for the Jews, socially common, I don't know if they still do today, to greet each other with a kiss. This is a form of greeting, okay? Um, it's not a form of greeting that's common to most of us Westerners. Some, there are some European countries it's common, although I suspect, again, with the pandemic, that's changing. But it's not real common to us. I so Here I sit in South Central Texas and or North South Texas, anyway, outside of San Antonio. And yeah, it's not real common around here. You know, guys don't walk up to each other on the street and kiss each other on the cheek. It's just weird. And we certainly don't practice that in our worship service. So the New Living Translation translates the idea behind it. Greet each other with Christian love. Greet each other like you like each other. Like you want to spend time around each other. Like you genuinely care about the other person. That's what it is to greet each other in Christian love. Whatever form that takes in your society, in your culture, then make that expression. He goes on. As mine listed as 13. All of God's people here send you their greetings. What people? Well, the church is at Macedonia. That's where he is when he's writing this. And he said, that, hey, these folks here, they're praying for you. They see you as their brothers and sisters in Christ. They send their greetings to you. They want you to know they're in, they're in this too. And then we get to verse 14. And verse 14, I think, is one of those powerful places in Scripture. Uh, you may occasionally have those folks that knock on your door and want to have you take their magazine and they'll explain to you how they follow Jehovah and there is no Trinity. It's not found in the Bible. And in all fairness, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But boy, the concept of Trinity is all over the place. We see it some in the Old Testament. We see it heavy in the New Testament. You don't have to go any farther than, than the Great Commission. Go make disciples, baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Well, here in 14, we see some of that echoed. He says, may the grace, and this is the blessing he's pronouncing on them. He says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Think about that. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, what is it that saves us? What is it that makes us right with God? 
grace we receive through Christ. The love of God. It is from the love of God that we have anything. It is from the generosity of God that we have a way to Him, that we can be made right with Him. The love of God provides for our needs and graciously restores us into His family. We rely on Christ's sacrificing love. And then he ends with, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's our fellowship with the Spirit. It is also the Spirit who joins all believers together in unity. It is the very indwelling presence of the Spirit of Christ in our lives. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there we go, Trinity. And he ends it with, be with you all. Well, I'm going to end this in a way different than I normally do. I normally voice a prayer, but I'm going to end with a benediction, literally a blessing. And I'm going to use Paul's very words here. So let me close with this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thanks for joining us as we travel through the book of 2 Corinthians. Join us next week as we pick up in another passage of Scripture. Thank mm-hmm. you.